Hello and welcome back to Interpreting India. This season, we at Carnegie India are examining many of the challenges and opportunities that India will confront in the coming decade. I'm your host, Anirudh Barman, and this week I'm joined by Dr. Harshwardhan to discuss India's commodity markets. The Indian government's response to the pandemic included a proposal to reform the agricultural markets through a set of laws that became controversial. In December 2021, the government was forced to roll back these laws that would have reformed agricultural marketing systems throughout the country. One of the objectives of these laws was to create a national market in agriculture. The creation of a national market would, among other things, improve the availability of price information to farmers when they plan on what crops to plant. This price information is often used by farmers in spot markets like mandis to negotiate for better prices as well. This would have happened, among other things, through a better linkage to commodity derivatives markets. Commodity futures markets or derivative markets like NCDEX and MCX are platforms for trades in commodity derivatives and they perform a vital role in the economy. However, because commodity exchanges deal in the trading of contracts related to agricultural commodities as well, they are sometimes the subject of political and regulatory interventions to a greater extent than other markets. In December 2021, the Securities and Exchange Board of India issued directions banning new derivative contracts in seven agricultural commodities. This ban covered more than 70% of the traded volumes in the Indian agri-commodities futures markets. What were the reasons for the sudden move and what repercussions did this have for spot markets in these commodities? What signals to such sudden moves by regulators sent to markets and how do markets tend to react to them? Today's guest, Dr. Harshwardhan, joins us to help unpack these issues. Dr. Harshwardhan is a senior advisor with the international management consulting firm Bain & Company. He has over 30 years of experience in the financial services sector. Dr. Harsh is actively involved in policymaking related to financial sector in India. He chaired the Committee on the Development of Securitization for Housing Finance, appointed by the RBI in 2019. Recently, he was a member of the Cross-Border Insolvency Rules of Regulations Committee of the Ministry of Corporate Affairs. He is an independent director on the board of Karur Vyasa Bank and the National Commodities Clearing Limited and chairs the risk management committees of the board for both. Harsh, welcome to Interpreting India. Thank you so much. Thanks for inviting me. Uh, I'm happy to be here. Uh, at the outset, I just wanted to uh, say that everything that I'll say today here would be my personal views and would not reflect the views of the various organizations I am uh, affiliated with. Sure, Harsh. Noted. Uh, Harsh, I wanted to start with a more prefatory question because you followed commodity markets and their development in India for a long time. So I would like to start this discussion by asking you to just give us a brief explanation of the importance of commodity exchanges to the economy especially sectors like agriculture. Yes. Um, so one of the basic things we should first understand uh, is the difference between spot exchanges or spot markets and derivatives markets because what is more recent and more formal are what are called derivative exchanges where futures and options get traded. Commodity spot markets have been around for a very long time, for as long as commodities have been around. Uh, so a simple example is that... Uh, uh, if you look at agricultural commodities, farm produce, they are mandis all over the country, right? They are nothing but markets, but they are what in uh, uh, the language of this business we'll call as spot markets or cash markets. 
Uh, a simple way to understand this difference, if you allow me two minutes, is all of us have vehicles where we uh, buy petrol every week or every other week, right? We go to a petrol station and we do a transaction. That is a classic cash or spot transactions. But imagine that if you find some kind petrol pump owner who says, where you go and say, look, I'm let's agree on a transaction where I'll get the petrol from you on 15th of August. But let's agree on the price today. That will become a futures market. That is what these exchanges are. Uh, so until about uh, mid-2000s, I think somewhere around 2001, 2002, uh, the first set of uh, formal modern commodity exchanges got set up in India. There used to be forward market in smaller segments earlier. So there was a small paper exchange uh, down in Cochin, uh, which is functioning for a lot. But uh, more sort of as a company, more modern organized exchanges started around that time. Uh, and there are four or five uh, licensed exchanges now. A couple of them are uh, sort of, let's say, operationally more active. Uh, subsequent to that, about uh, three, four years ago, there was a change in exchange regulations in that now we have a uniform exchange license, which means even the stock exchanges can offer commodity derivatives. Uh, so there is nothing that today stops a, a stock exchange, equity exchange, from offering a futures product in a commodity. So we have now, uh, quote-unquote, a universal exchange license. So that's been a history. Uh, uh, most uh, the, the commodities that get traded or the, or the futures and options on which get traded on the Indian commodity exchanges fall into basically, I would say, three types. Uh, metals, which is mainly gold. Energy, which is mainly crude oil and to some extent natural gas. And then there are agricultural commodities. Uh, there are quite a few of them. Right. So these are most commonly the commodities that get traded on Indian exchanges. And so is the case globally. If you look at some of the larger global exchanges, these are typically, they tend to be commodities that most commonly get traded uh, or the derivatives on them get traded. There are odd exchanges here and there. There's an exchange in Dali and in China, which uh, trades uh, futures on plastic and polymer. Uh, there is one in, um, I think, Malaysia, which trades biofuels. So there are some peculiar exchanges. There is uh, one exchange for coffee. There is one for palm oil and so on and so forth. But other than that, broadly, these are the three categories. They are, they are called commodity complexes. So there's an agro agriculture complex, uh, metals complex, and then there is energy complex. That's how these places work. Okay, thanks for that. And one of the things that's drawn my interest to this uh, issue of commodity market regulation is the fact that it has strong linkages to spot markets in agriculture, like you were pointing out. So could you talk to us a little bit about the linkages between the agri spot market and the mandis that you were talking about and commodity exchanges yeah so let me first talk about general relationship between a futures market and a spot market right um, uh, spot market as i said it's exactly what you do when any any time you go to a shop across the counter you buy a cake of soap uh, you give them money and you're done uh, there are spot markets for commodities also where uh, so all the mandis are spot market the future markets are where you agree on a price but for a future delivery uh, that delivery could be one month out, two months out, three months out, six months out, right? Uh, now, what will be the linkage? The linkage is therefore the futures market give you a sense of which direction the prices are moving. Uh, so, for example, uh, there is there are terms like backwardation and contango, which means whether the future prices are higher or lower than the spot prices. Both the situations can arise. And normally, future prices are higher because... Uh, spot prices the simplest way for me to trade in futures is i buy something spot today hold it for three months 
and deliver it as future. And I will have the holding cost for the three months. So in the normal circumstances, futures market should have higher prices than uh, spot markets. Um, uh, so there is a linkage and the linkage often is um, uh, based on the re- prevailing interest rate because my holding cost for anything is basically the interest I pay on the money that I have invested. Uh, and therefore, there is a in, in finance literature, you have a, a mathematical relationship called spot future arbitrage by which you determine the relationship between spot price and uh, futures price. However, that linkage is not perfect because futures price could be impacted by a lot of global events. Let me give you a given example. If you look at wheat prices, uh, wheat, uh, uh, futures got uh, banned. But post, uh, if you look at world or futures prices of wheat, when the Ukraine war started, suddenly there was a spurt. Not that the interest rate had gone up. They had gone up, but might be. And the reason was suddenly there was a question about future demand supply situation. So futures prices also reflect a lot of happenings that could impact future demand supply. Spot market reflect today's demand supply. Futures market market reflect today a future outlook on the future demand supply as well as the prevailing interest rate to some extent. That's how I'll put it. So in that sense, even for agricultural commodities, futures market basically offer a price signaling mechanism for the future. So they or the spot market, for the direction of the spot market. For the spot market. And they enable you to think ahead and plan ahead in terms of what to sow, what to grow, and so on. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, let me put it more broadly. Uh, so the role of futures market is really taking out price uncertainty from the commodity. And for, I mean, uh, the, the essential characteristics of all commodities are that they are traded uh, across the world. Let's take an example of soybean. Right. Soybean is produced everywhere from Latin America to Asia to, and it's consumed all over the world. If you are a farmer in Madhya Pradesh with 20 acres of land, you produce soybean, you have no idea by the time your crop comes what the prices could be because they are the outcome of a large number of global demand supply factors. Whereas your cost could be quite fixed. You know, you spend money on fertilizers, other farm inputs, laborers and so on and so forth. So you would like to seal your futures price. Right? So you know that your harvest is going to come back, come out in, let's say, February, March or whatever time, April it comes out. If in January, when the time that you are beginning to spend on that crop, if you know that you could lock in a price, you at least are certain yeah, about what, what the uh, price at which you're going to sell your harvest. Then there'll be uncertainty about the quantum you produce and so on and so forth. But at least one big ele- element of uncertainty about price you can take away by actually uh, selling in futures or selling futures on that uh, whatever quantum you want to sell on. So in that sense, the linkage between commodity markets and the at least one of the laws that was presented in the agricultural modernization laws on contract farming, there's a very direct linkage between the two, right? Because they both help curb price uncertainty. And I guess they would both allow farmers the ability to see what is or to hedge the risk of prices going south in the future. Yeah, so you're talking about the farm laws uh, and allowing contract farming. I think the contract farming issue probably goes into other area other than just this price issue. Uh, the way I would put it is, look, uh, futures market are not easy to understand. Uh, and uh, therefore, if you are a small farmer, uh, uh, it will take you a while to actually figure out. Whereas if you allow contracts who are more organized players, they might be able to better play. Uh, so that's the limited way in which uh, the future ma- existence of a futures market in agricultural commodity links to the contract farming issue. 
Today, for example, what you see a lot of uh, farmer producers, organizations, cooperatives, effectively on behalf of a set of farmers, uh, buy and sell futures in the market. Because it will be hard for individual farmers, unless you are a large, very organized sort of a farmer, uh, to start directly dealing in these markets. So to that extent, yes, that contract farming, assuming that the contracting is done to more organized players, uh, uh, could actually have helped uh, use, use of futures and options. So given that complexity, in your experience, how are Indian farmers and exporters using uh, futures markets to figure out what the spot market should be? Yeah, so generally, I, I doubt it. I'll say the penetration of futures market in India is quite small right now. So if you look at the total commodities that get produced, and there are about 20 plus commodities on which uh, futures contracts are um, uh, permitted. Um, the government, uh, sorry, the regulator banned seven of them, and we can get into that a bit later. Uh, but across all those, the actual use of futures market as a percentage of the total volume that gets produced is quite tiny. And that's a classic signal of a market being an ascent market. But within those commodities, you find some commodities tend to have a higher penetration. Uh, so I would say, relatively speaking, for example, uh, more commodities that have a commercial industrial type of uses. Let me give you an example of castor seed, which gets produced in castor oil, uh, which has a lot of industrial applications. Uh, there, the relative uh, penetration is more. And again, the reason was that uh, there were more organized buyers. So they were, you would be interested in buying it in futures. Uh, similarly, there is a uh, there is a thing called guar seed, uh, uh, which is which is a seed that gets produced parts of Western India, which goes into a lot of food products. The the derivative from those seeds, so they, it also had a relatively more de- and deeper uh, uh, futures market. Again, because on the buyer side there were more organized players. Uh, you tend to see that a little bit more in soybean compared to let's say wheat or paddy. Uh, you have uh, uh, futures market, but uh, basically no penetration. Uh, so, so while we have had these uh, markets and these uh, contracts available for a long time, the penetration levels are generally small and they vary across commodities. Okay. So, what is holding back the development of these markets? Is it a question of infrastructure? Is there a issue of regulatory uh, constraints or barriers that are holding back the development of these markets? So, I would say many things. Uh, I, I mean, look, development of uh, commodity markets, futures market has never been easy anywhere in the world. Uh, some of the more established exchanges have been around for hundreds of years. CME, which is the largest, uh, uh, has been there for probably over 100 years. Uh, you know, so it takes a long time. Uh, there is a lot of institutional development that needs to take place uh, around the, the core exchange. You know, you need to have, uh, for example, in agricultural commodity, you have to have the whole warehousing ecosystem in place. You have to have a financing ecosystem in place. And most importantly, look, when when does any marketplace become uh, a thriving place? When there is a large number of diverse buyers and sellers. Fundamental function of any market is, uh, is uh, price discovery, right? That the right price for any good is discovered in the process of buying and selling. Now, that requires a large number of diverse players. Uh, if you have a large number but monolithic pair who all buy want to buy and sell at the same time, you will still not have a good market. Uh, and that takes time. Uh, so I talked about, you know, uh, if if you need a very large number of farmers, then we need to have very large number of farmers who have access to these markets. They have some understanding, basic level. All that will take time. Um, another important thing, you talked about regulations. I think our regulatory framework is by and large comp- comparable with in, anywhere else in the world. Um, 
uh, few differences. For example, we don't allow financial sector, financial players, financial institutions yet to participate. So we don't have what in the US is called Wall Street uh, traders, which is people who sit on actually who are financial institutions but trade in all sort of agriculture from a almost purely speculative basis. A lot of that happens in oil, for example, oil, oil, uh, which is, we don't yet allow that. Uh, now, it's, there's a long debate whether it should be allowed or not. Uh, there are pros and cons. Uh, we don't need to get into that debate. But uh, my sense is that maybe over the next 20 years, we might allow. And that might add another, uh, uh, that might boost the development of these markets. Uh, so it's a so slow process. We are making progress, but but it's a long journey. Uh, and I must say that uh, of, over the last 15, 16 years that I have been observing it, there have been a lot of very good developments. Now we have a very well-established warehousing system. There is something called warehouse receipt, uh, digital warehouse receipts, uh, where where if you are a farmer, we have stored uh, you know 20 quintals or 200 quintals of wheat in a particular warehouse. You get a receipt, which is almost like a uh, like a, a financial security. You know, it is reliable. It's digital. Uh, there is a uh, tracking of it, which was not the case even 10 years ago. So there have been institutional developments, but for them to result into a, uh, a liquid and large commodity market will be a little bit of a journey. Right. Uh, so I want to come to the regulatory piece next, but I wanted to just probe you a little further on the infrastructure provisioning bit. And I played a small role in my previous job in helping develop the electronic receipt system for warehouses. So I wanted to just ask a little bit, what are the kinds of price information that a farmer is looking for when they are looking at a commodity exchange? How do they, what are the different mechanisms through which they can access it? What's happening in terms of doing more on that front in India? Yeah, so uh, a commodity futures market is, uh, in terms of the way it discloses price, it's very similar to stock market. You, you have all the TV channels where the ticker runs. Very similar ticker can run and does run out of commodity markets. So, uh, and the, I know of instances where many panchayats in villages actually put a box where these commodity tickers run. So you'll have a jira price and this price and that price, and the farmer sees it. Farmer can see that for May delivery, jira is, and so then they can have an argument with the local spot. You know, if one month price is so high, why are you paying me low? So it's a simple, basic price information dissemination. Uh, that happens and that that's happening now. I mean, the, these, these tickers are available everywhere electronically. Now, of course, the farmer has to have access to a place where they can see this. Uh, and we can, uh, and I think it's it's a bit of a public good. So uh, putting those boxes up in panchayats and all could be very useful. They don't cost a whole lot. Uh, so I think uh, simple and, and uh, my view is that the role of futures prices in uh, disciplining the behavior of spot market is so important that it will probably in our interest to make the future spices available in every Monday in the country where those commodities are traded so that the farmers have some bargaining power, at least some basis of information uh, in dealing with the spot market, even if they don't themselves directly participate in the spot market, in the futures market. Right. Thank you for that. And I want to move next to the more uh, regulatory part of the commodity market aspect. And uh, I just want to Provide, I want you to provide me a brief context on what's gone in, in terms of regulation in the commodity markets. There was a major scam in commodity markets in 2012-13. And after that, there was a change in at least regulatory institutions. And SEBI has started regulating commodity markets since then. So could you just give a background as to what's been going on? Yeah, yeah. So uh, commodity futures market. Remember, we are all talking about futures market. Future markets are trade 
treated from a regulatory standpoint like financial securities so they come under the purview of securities and exchange board of india which is the financial sector financial markets regulator what you talked about till until about 12 13 whenever that change happened precisely it used to be not under sebi it used to be under something called forward markets commission which was under ministry of consumer affairs it was not even under the ministry of finance and then that uh, particular episode happened and uh, and i think it was a right thing to do that ultimately these are contracts that you trade which are very much in the nature of financial securities you are not actually trading the underlying commodities and so a lot of the dynamics of these markets in terms of how risks get managed are very similar to what happens in financial securities so now it is squarely and within the purview of the securities exchange board of india which is the regulator and which regulates uh, these exchanges just the way same way they re- regulate other exchanges uh, stock exchanges for example so all the exchanges have to comply with all the regulations that the securities exchange board imposes on this uh, in terms of who can trade how can they trade what are the rules and margining and so on and so forth uh, how how risks get managed uh, etc etc the governance of these exchanges all of those are under the purview of securities and exchange board right so one of the key functions i guess for sebi would be to actually maintain this role of commodity markets efficiently which is to enable them to ensure price certainty and stability for spot markets as well in addition to enabling efficient trading so how do you take a look at what sebi has done in the last 6 7 years on this front how have they approached commodity market regulation have there been any gaps in understanding or capacity building that's required and so on um so uh, this is my personal view when i when you look at regulator regulators tend to have two broad functions right one is to make sure that the markets are run well that there are no mishaps there are no uh, scandals uh, there is no payment crisis there are no uh, blow ups so that's one part and then secondly part is a developmental role that you know that these markets develop and play a, a useful and constructive role in the overall functioning of the indian economy i must say sebi, uh, uh, sebi has actually regulated it very fairly well uh um, and in fact my view is that bringing it under sebi was a good move uh, because uh, sebi has a much broader knowledge base of what could go wrong in other exchanges which it can then deploy here and it has done that it has harmonized a lot of uh, uh a lot of regulations uh, and by that bringing in best practices and so on in the functioning of commodity exchange which would not have been possible if it's they were still under another regulator which is not a broad broad, broad sector regulator in terms of development role again i think sebi has played a good role but i don't think it sees its direct role in actually building this space i think for that effort will have to be made by the exchanges themselves but also government uh, uh, let's let's take a simple example of how do you educate farmers uh, if they were to trade on exchanges i think that's not sebi's job uh, but but there could be efforts at the level of panchayats and uh, maybe through other ministry of agriculture and so on uh in order to increase participation um sebi could always uh make ma- major regulatory change like i just said allowing financial uh, institutions uh, but that that is a broader discussion and i i don't think uh, there is a degree of market readiness that we need also in in those kind of discussion uh, the financial sector regulator for example rbi would come into the picture they would also have to permit uh, financial institutions so it's a it's a double edged uh, sort of an issue so leaving aside those issues i think uh, my view is that sebi has done a fairly good job in ensuring that these uh, these markets work in a disciplined way that the risks are addressed risks are managed well the governance on them are uh, 
uh, is quite tight and so on and so forth. Right. So on that front, let me now pivot to the piece that you and uh, Margavi Zaveri co-authored. Uh, and you've actually written two pieces in uh, Bloomberg Quint about this. And this was about a direction that SEBI showed in December, which banned new derivative contracts in seven agri-commodities. So tell us a bit more about what this ban did, why do you think it was imposed, and what reasons SEBI is given for this ban? So it happened last year and it happened in two tranches. The first it happened, I think, August or September or October, and then it happened in December, where SEBI basically says it banned uh, future trading in seven uh, commodities, uh, wheat, paddies, soya bean, chana, moong, and so on and so forth. And they were actually commodities that uh, had a pretty significant share of the overall commodities trading in the country. Um and so obviously it was not a good news for commodity exchange because a large volume of the trading on those exchanges uh, went away. Now in the order uh, that Shebi issued to ban them, they did not give any reason. Uh, so it was just a order which saying that from such and such day, no future positions could be taken buying or selling in these commodities. Um, and so there was a lot of guesswork. And I want to highlight that because that's the only way you can try to make sense of such regulations when there is no formal expression given. And the guesswork, the most common consensus on this was that it was done because uh, there was uh, there was a rapid inflation happening in the pricing of spot pricing of this commodity and a lot of these commodities such as wheat um, paddy chala dal mung dal are uh, uh, consumption items for uh, the larger population and so uh, uh, there was a feeling that the inflation uh, if it was undesirable had to be curbed Uh, the the article that we wrote uh, basically alluded to the point that look Banning futures market, especially when it is so small as a percentage of spot, uh, the volumes uh, would not really curb uh, spot market price rise because spot market will have work on it. As I said at the beginning of our discussion, that it will reflect its own demand supply. And if there is a demand supply gap, prices will go up. I mean, it's no amount of uh, uh, futures market are in some sense like messengers, which tell you the uh, trend of future prices. They themselves don't set the future price. They are just reflecting outlook of various people and so the first article that we wrote which is the argument we made that look uh, uh, banning if if this was indeed the reason and this is a big if we don't know assuming that was the reason this would not work because uh, uh, and 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 then the second article we actually showed that it hasn't worked so the many of the commodities where the contests were banned the prices kept moving in the spot market wheat being a very good example and there were commodities that were not banned prices came down because again, the uh, spot market demand supply. So we had both the factual and the counterfactual to show that, look, the bans by themselves did not have any of the uh, any appreciable impact on the spot market price. Uh, so the, the bans were for a year. Uh, and I hope that they get lifted. Uh, because I think there's enough evidence now that they by themselves uh, do not influence uh, inflation if there were to be one in the spot prices, which is a reflection of underlying demand supply dynamics. Right. And there are a couple of reasons you alluded to in your pieces that people usually give or promote when they actually impose prohibitions on futures markets, which is one is about spot market price rise that you've talked to. The other is about holding. And we've had a lot of discussion, including the proposed or the uh, temporarily passed law that actually reformed the Essential Commodities Act 
on the question of hoarding. So can you talk to us a little bit about this apprehension of hoarding, the economic consequences and so on? The connect between hoarding and that as as follows, that if you are a farmer, if you see futures prices going up, instead of buying and locking the price, you will say, let me hoard my commodity and the future prices. Uh, but if you think through it carefully, it, it would not work because if every farmer starts uh, hoarding, then future supply will increase and the spot market price will come down. So there is a self-correcting mechanisms in these markets, which actually, in fact, my view is that banning them will exactly have the opposite effect. That that will actually promote more hoarding because now you, you are not selling daily trend. You are basically basing it on pure speculation. And if you feel that uh, conditions are such that prices are going to go up and I have no other reference point to check those prices. Here on a minute by minute, we are saying uh, the future prices. So my, my incentive to hoard will be even greater. Uh, so, so while I know hoarding is a problem and should create concern in the minds of uh, anybody who deals with this situation, uh, we have to be careful in linking that to the existence of a futures market. I don't think that link is quite as, uh, uh, as credible. And can you explain your findings a little bit more about what you did to actually examine whether the ban worked or not and what you found? No, so what we did was we said, look, uh, let's look at four contracts in the second article, mm-hmm. two of two uh, where the contracts were banned and two where the contracts were not banned. And we fixed the price of 100 on the day of the banning of contract and tracked the price in spot markets. Spot markets, polled prices are available and see how they moved. And what you find it in one of the contracts which was banned, uh, the prices kept moving up, which means clearly banning the future contract had, did not have any effect. There's another contract where before the ban, the prices were moving up, but uh, and the contract was not banned and prices came down. So tell again there the banning or not banning of contract had no uh, impact on the price. So we, we see that in the price data. Uh, and I think we can do that even now. We, we did it from, I think, uh, December to early May. If we extend it, I think the same logic you will find. And look, my own view has been that we didn't even have to look at the data because for the simple reason that the future market is such a tiny fraction uh, that uh, it's it's not even tail wagging the dog. It's like a hair on a tail wagging the dog if you believe that the future markets are going to swing park, spot market price. It provides, it provides a very good reference right. for the participant. That's about it. So in addition to not providing a reference because this ban has been imposed, what are the other downstream consequences for farmers, traders, exporters? Yeah, I mean, you have effectively prohibited the farmers from locking up good prices. I mean, uh, at, a, at, a, at a broader and somewhat more philosophical level, why is it that farmers always have to suffer? Why can't they once in a while enjoy high prices uh, if demand supply justify? I mean, we seem to say, oh, uh, price inflation in agriculture is bad because it's going to impact uh, population. Yes, it is, but it is going to benefit farmers. Uh, they are also an important part and constituents of uh, the population and in fact, a larger percentage of the population. Uh, so that's a f- more of a philosophical uh, argument. Second point is that uh, generally as a regulator, I feel when you take such... Um, what I would characterize as a drastic action, you have to have some justification that you explain so that at least the market understand why it was done uh, so that it sets a precedence that in future, uh, you know, people are better prepared if there were bans that were going to come. In the absence of any explanation, you just keep wondering uh, because then you say, well, maybe tomorrow three more contracts could be banned. Who knows? Um, and, uh, and, and finally, I think your earlier question Actions like this, I don't think work 
uh, in the interest of the broader development of these markets. If we believe that developing a futures market is generally um, useful for our economy as it becomes larger, more complex, um, we need to have deeper and larger and more participative exchanges. Actions like this, I think, set us back a little, especially when when taken without uh, a clear explanation. And it's been almost six months now that uh, the action was taken. Well, the order said the ban is for a year. Uh, so I don't think the regulator is obligated to make any clarification. They can always lift it before that original thing. Uh, I hope they do that. But uh, uh, they are not obligated to do anything in between as long as the ban is uh, in place. There were two other points that you made in your articles that I found interesting. One was that uh, you hinted or talked about the fact that some of this could have been done in consultation with, with the central government. And uh, you hinted at the fact that this actually shows or has adverse implications for SEBI's independence and its stature as an independent regulator. So, A, could you talk to us a little bit about that? Yeah, so uh, that was guesswork. I must say that it's a speculation. And the reason it was speculation is simple. SEBI's legal mandate, if you look at, is not price stability. So even if it was inflation was a concern, it, is, it should not be SEBI's concern. See, all regulators have to work within their mandate. Price stability is RBI's concern. It's their mandate. It's not SEBI's mandate. So assuming, again, I come back to that. We are making an assumption here. Assumption, assuming that inflation was the concern, which resulted in this ban, I mean, SEBI is not mandated to deal with inflation. That was uh, one. And so the logical conclusion would have been, it's obviously it's a concern of the government. It should be the concern of the government. Uh, so that's where we speculated that it may have been uh, in consultation with the uh, uh, with the government. And the second point over that then is they said, look, if, if a regulator takes action which are not directly related to its mandate, uh, uh, then the field is open, right? Which which means any other action could be taken. Uh, so my, it's it's not so much about independence. Ultimately, I think all regulators are agents of the state. Uh, so to that extent. Uh, they reflect the wishes of the state. But uh, in order to ensure that there is a degree of predictability to their action, uh, their mandate becomes important because that's enshrined in the law that creates them, which is law that is passed by the parliament. Uh, so if there is an action that is not clearly uh, within the mandate, then it raises a bunch of questions about, uh, you know, uh, is this a, is this a open-ended uh, regulatory setup where any action could be taken in future? That was the point that we were trying to really drive at. My final question was more in the context of the immediate economic situation. And you talked about this in the beginning of the conversation that with the Ukraine crisis going on right now, there were both opportunities and challenges for uh, exporters, traders, especially because international prices were going up. So how does this ban impact that? So imagine you are a farmer, you are a wheat producer in uh, in Madhya Pradesh or um, and you saw wheat prices going up, you know, they went up 20, 30, 40%. And we would have loved to lock at least half your produce at higher prices because by the time you, your crop comes, maybe the conflict gets over and prices crash. They can crash like 30% in a day if the conflict gets over or 20% in a day. So you have deprived the farmer of an opportunity to lock in uh, this high rising prices because of the global situation. Again, I mean, the farmer is the sufferer here. All of us will pay higher prices of wheat, but that's fine. It's a it's a it's a it's a small fraction of our spend. It's the entire income for a wheat farmer. I know. So you have deprived a farmer of that opportunity, right? And so I think uh, 
and this you can say same thing soybean and many other commodities you know dals and uh, various uh, uh, pulses and uh, cereals and so on um so that's the real point that uh, you know it at a time when after a very long time there was a, a steep rise in the prices you deprived the farmers from benefiting that and i don't know how honestly how much have we saved the broader population in terms of actually curbing the impact of inflation uh, our family even normal family household is spend on wheat would be a tiny fraction uh, you know so i think uh, that 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 is how i see it and this especially in the context where agriculture has been one of the better performing sectors during the covid crisis and look let me uh, make a broader point you know we have had these uh, uh, minimum support prices for a very long time in our country which is a backbone of our agriculture policy and i don't want to discuss them because there are the the political economic question there are broader but if when the government issues minimum support prices in the language of the commodities market it is issuing what is called a put option it is given an option to farmers saying you can sell it to me in the future date at this price now just as a thought experiment imagine if government allowed somebody else to do it a market participant a buyer of these commodities a, a flour mill or something and facilitated that process it helped both sides to say that look why don't you commercially i will i will how much of a revolutionary change it could be uh, in terms of the way we do this we have achieved the same outcome which is that the farmer gets an assured price but in a very without burdening the government the government said okay you farmer you are buying a put option in the market there is a premium you have to pay i will subsidize that premium but then i will not give you the minimum support price i i'm just offering that as a rather simplistic and a, almost like a thought experiment idea so i am saying developing these markets could have profound impact on the way we do broader agricultural policies and that's how i think we ought to see this yeah and that's a great note to end this discussion it's been a great free wheeling conversation and thank you for that and we'll post the links to both the pieces that you have co-authored on this issue on our page uh, for the podcast for those who are interested thank you harsh thank you thank you thank you for having me We'll be back in two weeks with a new episode. To make sure you don't miss it, subscribe to Carnegie India on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts from. To learn more about our research and team, you can visit carnegieindia.org. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, and Instagram. Thank you for listening. See you next time.